don't even know passed away and left me $85,000. And he, the, the friend was just scratching his head. And then he said, and then just last week, my great aunt died and she left me $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. And the, the man said, well, well, then why are you so down? What, what's there to be glum about? He said, well, no one's died this week and left me anything. <laughs> well, you know, the, the reality is, is that sometimes um, we, can, we can find a lot of reasons to be ungrateful and overlook all of the blessings that we have in our life, particularly uh, the blessings as, uh, that, that God has provided for us. Now, it's important as we read this text together that we understand that no one in the world should be more thankful than Christians. No one in the world should be more thankful than Christians. Now, just in terms of the context, so we understand where we are in the Gospel of Luke, we've taken a diversion from our study in Job. Um, we notice that it says in verse 11 that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. Now, as we understand this, we know that this is all part of a final journey that Jesus is taking to the cross. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 51, it tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so it's following along this long journey that he's taking to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Um, and, uh, and, and so because this, this journey is so long and you can see it in other places in Scripture, lots of scholars kind of refer to the Gospels as passion narratives, narratives about the cross, with extended introductions. <laughs> and really, that's, that's what we see here. But there's a specific purpose in all of this. We have to remember that Jesus has been preaching to many, many people. And some people who heard his message were ambivalent, some people were hostile, and then other people believed. And so this passage is here to explain the difference. Why do some people believe, other people turn away when they hear the message, and, uh, and some people just don't care one way or the other? What, what makes the difference? Well, we notice that, that it's beautifully illustrated in these verses. In 12 through 14, we have the story about Jesus healing 10 lepers, Jesus heals 10 lepers. Now it begins, as we see in verse 12, it says that he entered, uh, a, when he entered a village, he was met by these 10 lepers. Now this is logical that this would be written this way because uh, when you would go into a village, you would, you would, uh, that would be the place of commerce. That was where the elders met. That's where people got together. That's where things were happening. So right there when Jesus was entering this particular village and Luke doesn't tell us which one because it doesn't matter. He does tell us that Jesus is kind of on the line between Samaria and Galilee and we'll see why that's important later in the story but, he, but he's not really telling us which, which village it is and it doesn't matter. But Jesus is entering into this village and he is met by these 10 lepers who it tells us in verse 12 had to stand at a distance. Well, some, some might not know why they had to stand at a distance because they had leprosy, but we'll, we'll just kind of look at the, the scriptures and see why we have a, in, in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, we read this. The leprous person who has the de disease shall wear torn clothes 
and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, there was nothing in the world that was worse than getting a diagnosis that you had leprosy. People who were lepers were social outcasts. Uh, When they were diagnosed by the priest with having leprosy, uh, they, they were sent off and the family would often hold a ritual that resembled a funeral to mark their departure. They were basically the living dead. We have this picture of, of one form of leprosy, someone who has it today. It's a very sad picture. You have this woman who has this condition of leprosy. She has one called Hansen's disease, but there are many other skin conditions that were considered leprosy. And you can just imagine in your mind's eye what it would be like for a person to not only get a diagnosis like that, but then to be quarantined outside of the camp so that you wouldn't spread whatever you had to everybody else. And so uh, people in that situation were isolated, they were alone, and by Jesus' day, they would get together and they would form leper colonies and they would stay together and they would help each other and lepers could do things like they could produce goods, they could sell goods, but they had to stay away from people. Well, we notice here that when Jesus entered the village and they realized who it was, they started shouting out to him in verse 13. It says, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, this is a very appropriate thing, more appropriate than they realized thing to say to Jesus. As you look through the Psalms, it's full of people's cries to the Lord, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. And now you have this case not knowing that he's God incarnate, surely, but knowing that God is using him tremendously to heal people of all kinds of terrible diseases and maladies and people who are paralyzed. And and, and Jesus had done all of these incredible things. And so they cried out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And it's, it's kind of interesting how Jesus dealt with the situation. There are many times where people were unclean, where Jesus reached out and touched them and healed them. There was no way that they could spread their contagion to him. He's the son of God. He would, he would actually, through his power, he would, he would heal them. But in this case, he does something different. He simply says to them in verse 14, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, What's fascinating about this is that even though there was no change in their condition, they had such hope that they went and they did what he asked them to do. Now, um, can you imagine the kind of hope that they were experiencing? We've had a little bit of a quarantine, haven't we, over the last eight months? Some of you laugh because you say it's more than a little bit. (laughs) We've had a quarantine over the last eight months. And... um, we're at a point in time in our culture and our society where we're being told even what time we can leave the house and what time we can't. Um, we're, we're told what we have to wear when we go in buildings. We're told what we can wear when we're going outside. We are living in a state of quarantine. And how exciting is the news that when it comes out and you hear about a study and it says that there's 95% efficacy in a per- certain study that they've developed a vaccine. 
In fact, when those studies come out, the stock market goes crazy. If you've been watching it, you'll see how, the, how it's been rising on the good news of life going back to normal. There's a certain joy, there's a certain hope of, of life getting back to the way that it used to be. Even when we're still under the quarantine, even when the virus is still out there. Well, as we look in the case of this these particular group of 10 men, you can imagine the hope that they had when Jesus says to them, go and show yourself to the priest because they understood that it was a priest that diagnosed their condition and it was also a priest that recognized that they had been healed from their condition. And so they, they took off with simply the hope that, that they would be healed to the priest. And then we notice here that as they were going in verse 14, it says they were cleansed. They were cleansed. Now, we're not sure which priest they were going to go to. We don't know if they had to go to Jerusalem to go to a priest. We don't know if there was a priest in the village. But what we do know is that as they were on their way, as they left Jesus, we see this miracle happen in them, and they were cleansed. Now, think about the excitement that they had. And, and again, we think about our own quarantine. What are you excited about when, when life goes back to normal, when you don't have to wear masks anymore? when you can get together with more than 10 people at a time and all of these things. What are you looking forward to? Spending time with certain people that you haven't been able to spend time with, doing certain things that you haven't been able to do. Well, that's exactly what they were thinking about. They had said goodbye to parents. They had said goodbye to siblings. They, perhaps they had said goodbye to a spouse. Perhaps they had said goodbye to children. And for all intents and purposes, they were dead but now Jesus cleansed them. Now they could go back to their old way of life. Now they could go back to the life that they longed for and they, they couldn't wait to enjoy and to live. And so a healing from leprosy was about as close to a resurrection as a person could possibly get. But in the, in the text, we're introduced to, to, an, to one of the ten men, and he was different from the rest. He, w- he was different because he saw something in Jesus that the others didn't see. First of all, he was different because he saw something in Jesus that the others didn't see. Now, we learn about him that when he saw that he was healed, he turned back and went to see Jesus. Now, Of the ten, he's the only one who turns back to go to Jesus. And you can imagine the commotion that this would have caused. Here's Jesus in this village. The man goes back to Jesus. He realizes that he's been healed. And it says that he praised God in a loud voice. He praised the God of Israel in a loud voice. What a beautiful thing that must have been. But what a strange sight it would have been. I would assume that this wasn't a normal occurrence. Sure, people, it was a very religious culture. Sure, people praised God, but not with the kind of emotion and passion that this man had as he was praising God. In fact, it emphasizes the fact that he did so in in a loud voice. He couldn't contain his emotion. He was dead, but now he's alive. It says in verse 16 that when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet giving him thanks. Now, this probably wasn't normal, but this man wasn't concerned about social convention. Jesus had just done something for him that was so extraordinary, he couldn't help himself but to to lie down before him. 
Jesus changed him. The other men saw a healer. He saw a savior. He saw a savior. We also notice here that he was different because he was a Samaritan. He was different because he was a Samaritan. You have to understand um, that Samaritans were hated. Luke drops the hammer here in verse 16. He says that he was a Samaritan, and, and, and that was sort of like being a double outcast. Okay, you were an outcast if you were a leper, right? Basically, by definition, you were an outcast. But this man was even more of an outcast because he was a Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They had a long, long history of about 700 years at this point of hostility toward one another. The Samaritans were the ancestors of a people group that conquered Israel. The Assyrian Assyrian Empire invaded Israel. They, they took the people living in the northern part of Israel. They took them into slavery. They took them into captivity. They tortured them. They killed them. They abused them. They hurt them. And then with the few people that were left in the land, the Assyrians decided that they would repopulate the land in order to destroy Jewish culture in the northern part of Israel forever. Those people came into the land They intermarried with the Jewish people living there. They came up with their own hybrid type of religious observance system. And as a result of it, when the Jewish people came back to the land and and they, they took control more or less of most of the land, there was this lingering hostility and hatred between the two groups that is hard to describe in just in the few minutes that we have. And so when Luke says that he was a Samaritan, this is a huge statement to make. It's amazing that you have this, um, number one, the Samaritan living with Jewish people in a Jewish leper colony, isn't it? He, and one of the things that it points to is that when, when we are in dire straits, when things fall apart, one of the things that we often see is all of the social and ethnic hostilities that exist between people, they melt away. These were people who were outcasts and they needed each other. And this Samaritan was was just in the same kind of trouble as the other Jewish people were in this particular leper colony. And they lived together. They lived together. And um, you wonder when when, when the 10 went to Jesus and they'd heard the stories about Jesus... And the things that Jesus had done, you wonder if he wondered to himself, will Jesus heal me? I mean, I can see maybe he's thinking that he could see how Jesus would heal a a Jewish person. Here he was a rabbi. But would he actually heal someone like me? I am a Samaritan. I am hated. My people uh, exploited the Jewish people a long, long time ago. We live in hostility toward them. We don't like each other. And then as he went on his way, he discovered that Jesus included him too. Well, well, running to Jesus was irresistible. He couldn't help himself. He recognized that Jesus did something for him that was so profound that that he he couldn't do anything else but go to him. And, And really, this is what happens when a person comes to know Christ as Savior. When a person comes to know Christ as Savior, there's, there's no more of this kind of pretend Christianity going along. 
you know, when, when we think about uh, all the things that may attract us to worship, all of the things that, that may attract us to, to church, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the, the time that we spend with people that we know and love, maybe it's the songs that we sing, maybe it's, it's, um, maybe it's the, the, the ethics that we get from the Bible and we say those ethics are really good, or maybe it's the worldview that the Bible presents and we think that it's a good thing to be a Christian, But what this man had was far more than that. What this man had was a relationship. His his going to Jesus, his act of service, his running to Christ had nothing to do with anything that was contrived or manipulated. It's nothing that he was guilted into. But it was something that happened out of sheer joy because Jesus reached down into his life and Jesus took away the stain of his leprosy and he could not help himself but to run to Christ and, and to, to fall on his face before him and give him thanks for all that he had done in his life. There was this, there was this gratitude that was within him that, that erupted the moment that he saw Jesus and he, he could not control it. You see, that's, that's genuine faith. That's the life of a person who has a real relationship with Christ. We serve him not because we're pushed into it, not because we have to be goaded into it, not because there's somebody there saying you should do it. No, because there's our own inward desire to come to him because he has radically changed our heart and he has made us new. And as a result of it, we cannot help ourselves but to run to him, to serve him, to give thanks to him for all that he's done in our life. We have this beautiful picture of what a changed heart looks like He was also different. He wasn't just different because he saw something in Jesus that the others didn't see. He wasn't different just because he was a Samaritan. But he was different because he was saved from something that was worse than leprosy. He was saved from something that was worse than leprosy. Jesus was stunned when he saw the man. He said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Well, what's the point of this? It's a a teaching moment. Though there are lots of people who love Jesus preaching and his miracles, it explains why few respond to him. Um, Leon Morris, uh, a preeminent, he's, he's passed away, but he was a preeminent New Testament scholar He said this, the nine were so absorbed in their new happiness that they could not spare a thought for its source. The nine, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to their old life. They wanted to go back to the way that things used to be. They were looking forward to mom's home cooking. They were looking forward to walking the streets that they once walked. They were looking at building the relationships that they once had. They were looking at engaging in their old trades. They wanted to go back to their old life. But this man, he ran to Jesus because he wanted a new life. He wanted something that the old life could never offer. Mark Delaney, at the end of the first service, he said something to me very interesting. And he asked the question, you know, why did this man go to Jesus? And one of the things that Mark said, which I think is right on point, is that, is that um, he went to Jesus because he had nowhere else to go. Okay, think about this for a second. 
you have this leper colony. There are 10 people in it. Nine of them are Jewish. Nine of them have been diagnosed by the Jewish priest that they have this condition of leprosy. There's one who's a Samaritan. What would happen to the Samaritan if he were to go to the priest? Well, he would be rejected because he was a Samaritan. He was still unclean. Where could he go to be made clean? There was nowhere he could go but to Jesus. He went to Jesus because there was nowhere else to go. And if you have ever experienced what it's like to be forgiven of your sin, if you know what it was like to bear the burden of your sin and the alienation that that caused in your life between you and God, if you've known what it's like, then you know that there is a leprosy that we carry around in all of us that is something that is far worse than anything that could be seen with the human eyes, and it's something within. It's a leprosy of sin wearing us down and tearing us apart inside, and there is only one remedy for that, for that terrible disease, and that is Jesus. You see, this man had nowhere else to go but Jesus. And when he turned to Jesus, he found someone who would accept him. He found someone who would love him. Someone who would take him just the way that he was. Though he was living in a world where everyone would reject him. His own people because he was a leper. And the priests because he was not part of Judaism. He went to Jesus. And because he went to Jesus, he found salvation. And he found acceptance with the only one whose opinion really matters. And that's the living God. It's a beautiful story. Have you ever been there in your life when there was no one else to go but Jesus? On one hand, it feels very helpless if you're there. But on the other hand, there's nothing more freeing and more liberating and empowering than that because he meets us in our pain. He meets us in our distress. He meets us in our difficulty. He comes alongside of us in our pain. You see, uh, the beautiful thing about this situation is is that uh, um, all those who know Christ are marked with this deep love and devotion to him. We can't help but shout his praises. We can't help but lay at his feet. We can't think of anything better than laying our lives down before him. You see, this is the story, and I hope this is all of our stories. If you know Jesus, it's your story. This is the story of somebody who's been raised from death to life. This is the story of someone who has been delivered from darkness into his marvelous light. This is the story of a person who has been freed to live a new kind of life. He doesn't want the old life. He wants the new life that's only found in Jesus, and he understands that. Just three points of application as we think about this text together. Number one, number one, in Christ, we have a new identity. All social and ethnic divisions fall away. Now, it seems like this is the most elementary point. If, if any of you have spent time reading the Bible, you know this is the most elementary point I could possibly make. That in Jesus, all ethnic divisions, all social divisions, they fall down. Um, but 
we're living at a time where uh, it seems like all of these things are being heightened within the culture. That the tensions between, between ethnic groups, the tensions between, um, between uh, uh, social classes seems to be elevating and getting worse. And, and, and what, what it seems to be then is a diminishing impact of the church on the culture. It's a, it's a picture of that. You have even... You have even people who teach in Christian schools, who have PhD degrees in theology, who spend their time heightening the divisions that exist between different social and racial classes. They have peop- there are people who are experts on the Bible who don't even understand, it appears, this elementary point that when we come to Jesus, the ethnic divisions and the social divisions collapse. We see it beautifully illustrated in this story. Remember, we had the nine. They were, they were people. They were Jewish. They had God's word. They had the commandments. They bore the marks of the covenant on their body. And we have this other man, right, by contrast. He is, he is a Samaritan. He is an outcast. He doesn't have God's word. He doesn't have the commandments. He doesn't bear the covenantal marks on his body. Yet shockingly, it's the former group now because they have not come to Jesus. It's the former group that's on the outside and it's the one who is the outcast who's now on the inside. And that's all you have to do is read the Bible. You see that theme over and over again. It is the outcast who God brings on the inside, and it's those who think they're on the out, inside that, get, that, that really find out they're on the outside. You go through the book of Genesis, you see this over and over again. Abraham has two sons. You think that the one who's going to carry the blessing is the older one, but it's the younger one. Isaac has two sons. You think that it's the older one who's going to carry the blessing, but it's the younger one. Jacob has a whole bunch of sons. You think that it's going to be the firstborn of of his favored wife who's going to carry the blessing, but actually it's it's one of the sons of the the non-favored wife who carries the blessing. Over and over and over again in Scripture, what we see is that God takes those who are on the outside, God takes the outcasts and he brings them in, and those who think they're on the outside, well then we realize at the end of the story, they think they're on the inside, they're really on the outside. There's this great reversal that happens in Scripture all the time. And it comes to its full culmination in Jesus. In fact, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, these words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is Paul talking about, this dividing wall of hostility? Well, Paul is Jewish. He's writing to a Gentile audience, and he's explaining how God is now uh, grafting them in to his people. And, uh, and one of the things he says there at the end that's very interesting is that, that he actually um, he, 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 uh, he, he breaks down the wall of hostility. We read, by abolishing the law of of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man 
in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God, one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is, what is God doing? He's breaking down the wall of hostility that exists between all of the different ethnic groups so that in Christ we are seen as one person. Now, this, this wall of hostility that he's referring to, what is it? Well, there's actually a, 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 a something that archaeologists have unearthed, and uh, it's, a, it's a, an inscription that was in the temple. And the, and, the, and the way that the temple was laid out, on the very outside of the temple in Jerusalem, you had what was called the Court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were able to go there. They were able to worship, the God, worship God, but they weren't able to go any further than that place. And, and uh, that place separated the rest of the temple by a low wall. And that low wall had a number of ways to cut through that wall. So there, there were a number of openings in the wall that if you were Jewish, you could go further into the temple complex. But if you were a Gentile, you had to stay out of it. And so this is an is inscription that has been found. And this one's in a museum in Jerusalem. But this is actually what that inscription says. This was in the temple. This was in Jesus' day. This is what it would have read for anybody who would have seen it. It was a warning to Gentiles. It says this, No foreigner may enter with the balustrade, within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. So in other words, if you were a Gentile and you went beyond that part of the, of the temple complex, if you went beyond the court of the Gentiles and you went into the temple, if you were killed for that, you had yourself to blame. And this was called the wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile in the temple. And what does Paul say? He says that when we come to Christ, that wall of hostility is taken down. It is dismantled. It is no longer there. We don't judge people on the basis of their skin color. We don't judge people on the basis of their economic situation. We don't judge people on the basis of their social class. When we come to Christ, we are one people. And that is the beauty of the church. That's what I love about the church. In the church, you have people who are uh, from, from all different backgrounds. Some people uh, are children of immigrants, like, like me. Some people are, have been here ever since the Mayflower. Some people have, um, ha- are from, from the, the upper rim of, of social classes and wealth. Some people are struggling paycheck to paycheck. But when we come into the church, when we interact with each other, none of that matters. All that matters is Christ. And we love each other because he's made us in his image and he's redeemed us and he has loved us. And so the church is, is this beautiful picture of what the, what the world would be if all who followed Christ or if, if all people would simply follow Christ. We have this um, beautiful vision in the, in the book of Revelation that one day God's vision for the world, God's vision for people, it's that people from every tribe and tongue will come and follow him. He says this, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches on their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, when you realize that our real problem isn't the things that are on the outside, our real problems aren't the externals, our real problems aren't how much or how little money we have in the bank. When we realize those things, that that's not our real problem, what our real problem is is that we have been alienated from God and that it's only in Christ that we can be made well. And when we lay our lives down before him and trust him as our Savior, we experience the relief of knowing that our inner leprosy of sin has been healed and taken away. And now when we have a hostility towards some person because they have harmed us this much, we remember that God has forgiven us that much and those who have been forgiven much, what? Forgive much. This is the mark of a life of a person who knows Christ. All of those divisions, all of those hostilities melt away. They are no more because we're one new person in Jesus, and that is so beautiful. Oh, how the world would change. Oh, how much, how much the world needs to hear the message of the gospel. How because God has reconciled us to himself, therefore we can be reconciled to one another because of what he's done for us. If, if every person followed Christ, there would be no hostility uh, there would be none of these, these rivalries. It would all be gone. And one day, the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and that will be over. And there won't be any of these old hostilities that people carry with them in this life. Well, number two, second thing is this. Faith sometimes requires that we act on what we believe before we see God at work. Faith sometimes requires that we act on what we believe before we see God at work. Remember, these guys went off to the priest before they were even healed. And it was when they were on their way that they experienced the healing. They all had some modicum of faith. Only one had saving faith. But they all had some modicum of faith in what Jesus was telling them. And you know, uh, it wasn't so long ago that, that the hot topic within Christian circles was, how can, how can I step out in faith for the Lord? A hundred years ago, you had people doing extraordinary things. You had George Mueller running an a, a orphanage with thousands and thousands of children, and he never asked for any money, but God just provided abundantly somehow in a very powerful way, uh, took care of their needs. Or I think about, um, I think about my, my grandparents, for instance, who were, who were missionaries, and uh, on one occasion, and they were faith missionaries, and, and, uh, and not all missionaries need to do it this way, but this is the way they did it. They never raised support. They just went. And God took care of their needs. And um, one time, they, they were on their way to South America from New Zealand, and they, were, um, they, they stopped in, 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 in Vancouver, British Columbia. And when they got off the trip, there were some churches that helped them, and so they decided that they would go and, and just visit the churches in Vancouver. And one of the churches is, uh, is still to this day one of the most prominent churches in the city of Vancouver. I used to drive by it all the time when we lived there. And, um, and they asked him, they asked my grandfather to, to be the pastor of the church. And now they had been living in South America. They had been living in very, uh, uh, very poor conditions. And they were on their way to um, a, a very hot place in, in Bolivia. And when they were in Vancouver, this, this church is on the west side of Vancouver. And if you know anything about Vancouver, that is the wealthy part of town. And they put them up in this, this 
for all practical purposes, this very large and beautiful home. And they asked my grandfather to preach, and he was there one Sunday, he preached, and they said, well, can you preach again? And then they said, can you preach again? And then uh, a few weeks turned into a month, and a month turned into three months, and three months turned into six months, and they said, would you, would you stay and be our pastor? And he struggled with that decision. My, my grandmother loved living on the west side of Vancouver. <laughs> it was a lot easier life than living in South America. But finally, at the end of it, my grandfather, as he prayed about it, he said, in all the years I've, never, I've served the Lord, I've never earned a paycheck. And God has always provided for our needs. And I don't ever want to go to a life where I do receive a paycheck. I just want to serve him. And so, uh, they left there and they went back to South America because they believed that it was an act of faith, that God was calling them to do it. And they went back to South America and they planted churches. And what I'm told, those churches are still there today and they're bearing fruit today. But in order to see that, they had to take a step in faith. They had to believe that God was doing something bigger than what they could see with their eyes. They, they didn't take the easy way out. They took a step of faith. Sometimes we have to take, a, take steps of faith in our life even before we see any results of what we believe God is going to do. Sometimes we won't see the results in our lifetime. There are missionaries who went out on the mission field who preached the gospel for a long time who saw very few converts on the mission field, but later on, now today, some of those churches are exploding with growth, and if they hadn't gone, that wouldn't happen. And so God uses that he blesses that and sometimes faith requires that we act on what we believe before we see God at work what would God be calling you to do today what is he calling you to step out in faith about and finally the third one uh, there are many who hear the message of Jesus but few respond there are many who hear the message of Jesus few respond that's why that's why this story is here. It's to illustrate Jesus' journey to the cross. It's to explain how come, how come so many people love to hear Jesus. He was so popular, but then wasn't very long after that that the masses wanted him crucified. Well, it's because very few turned to him in faith and trusted him. Again, there are lots of things that can attract us to church. It could be the worldview, it could be the ethic, it could be the songs, it could be the friendships. But if it's anything other than Christ, then we're lost. He must be the ultimate attraction for us. It's Christ. That was the ultimate attraction for this man, the Samaritan outcast. It was Christ. It was because of what Christ had done for him. It's because Christ had taken away his external stain and as a result of his faith in him, this new life that he was living, living uh, given, Jesus, Jesus gave him this, this internal cleansing where his internal leprosy of sin was taken away so that now truly he was given a much more glorious and joyful existence than anything the old life could have ever offered. And so the question for each of us is, is do we want the new life in Jesus or do we just want the old life? 
the answer to that question tells us everything about where we are in our hearts. Have you come to him? Do you know him? Have you experienced that? Do you know what it's like to, to, to be motivated to serve him, not because of the applause of people or not because of, uh, of the uh, other things that go along with it, but you just long to serve him out of gratitude for what he's done? That's the heart of a person who knows him, who has a relationship with him. Have you experienced the cleansing that he offers? Have you experienced the new life that's only found in him? Cry out to him. Call out to him just like this man. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you that new life. But it begins with a step of faith of trusting him. He went to the cross. He died on the cross for our sin. He took our place on the cross. He paid the debt that we could not pay. It's sort of like um, when, when, uh, when, when you get a parking ticket. Let's say you get a parking ticket. You can't afford to pay it. And then somebody comes along and they give you the money to pay the parking ticket that you can't afford to pay. In the eyes of the law, you're now free, right? Well, this is how it is with our sin. There was a penalty to be paid for our sin, but we couldn't pay it. And so what God did was he sent his son Jesus, who paid our penalty for us, so that through faith in him, his work could be appropriated to us, Our sin can be washed away. Our shame gone. And at that moment when we trust him, he places his Holy Spirit in us and we are ushered into a new life that is far greater and far better than anything this old life or this old world could ever offer. But it begins with a step of faith. Do you know him? Let's pray.